Good morning, welcome to our Aliyah day. I am Rabbi Griffin, and I am glad to be with you this morning. Hope you're having a fine morning. Hope things are work working out well, prayerfully. You are going to have a blessed day, and a day of uh, exceptionally good news. We love those kinds of days, right? It's going to be a fantastic day. So, bienvenidos uh, an Aliyah day. It is, as I said, a joy to be here. We're going to be in the Book of Numbers, the Book of Bamidbar. And we find ourselves for the fifth reading, already the fifth reading of the week. Can you believe it? We are going to be in chapter 15, beginning in verse 8. That is where the first, excuse me, the fifth aliyah begins. So if you have the art scroll of uh, Humash, we are going to be on page uh, 8. 11, 811, I think, right? hope that's right. For our Sephardic friends out there and my broken Spanish. But anyway, it says uh, in verse 8, When you prepare a young bull as an elevation offering or a feast offering, because of an articulated vow or a peace offering to Adonai, one shall bring with the young bull a meal offering, three-tenth ephah fine flour mixed with a quarter hen of oil. You shall bring a half hen of wine for libation, a fire offering, a satisfying aroma to Adonai. Now, as you noticed, we started this yesterday in, in, in chapter 15, but we transitioned somewhat rapidly, somewhat sharply from the... Um, the the story of the spies and uh, that tragedy to now we're talking about libation offerings kind of turned on a dime the question becomes why and ultimately aside from the fact that Hashem is teaching us a new Torah here about uh, offerings and libations and the and the the mystery therein it begins if you'll notice going back to the first verse of this writing I'm interrupting myself here just to put this in context but. Hashem said to Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you will come to the land. So in other words, all of this discussion about offerings is placed here as an encouragement. That this is the, there is a present uh, punishment, there's a present exile of sorts, but the promise to enter the land still remains. Why? Because ultimately the promise is not dependent upon us. It doesn't mean that there's not punishment and judgment and what have you, but God's will will be accomplished. So continue reading in verse uh, 11. So shall be done for each bull, for each ram, for a lamb or a kid among the sheep or the goats. According to the number that you prepare, so shall you do for each one, according to the number. Every native shall do so with them to bring a fire offering, a status of aroma to Adonai. Verse 14, when a proselyte, that is a convert, sojourns with you, or one who is among you throughout your generations, and you shall prepare a fire offering, a satisfying moment to Adonai, as you do, so shall he do. For the congregation, the same decree shall be for you and for the proselyte, who sojourns an external decree for your generations, like you, like the proselyte, shall it be before Adonai. One teaching and one judgment shall be for you and for the proselyte who sojourns among you. The word uh, proselyte is used four times there. The last three have a specific meaning according to 
the commentators and the sages. We're going to get to that uh, momentarily. So I want to um, uh, go back, if I can, to uh, yesterday's Aliyah. And uh, we're going to start there with our comments because there was quite a lot that was left on the table. And then we're going to roll right into this libation uh, discussion, the fifth Aliyah, because there are some important comments to be made on my favorite topic, which is the topic of conversion, converts, etc. But anyway, let's go back to verse 27, uh, chapter 14 and verse 27. It says, this is again from yesterday's Aliyah. It says, How long for this evil assembly that provokes complaints against me? I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel whom they provoke against me. So first and foremost, the, the halacha of ten men making up a congregation, you have to have uh, a minion, you have to have ten men um, in order to have a congregation, in order to say certain uh, prayers and so on. The halakhic source for that is this story. Because Hashem refers to these ten spies as a congregation. And so from that point forward, it, be, it was understood in Judaism that a congregation consisted of a minimum of ten men. And so this is why you have the minion concept in prayer. But the comment in the art school, Humash, I want to point out, it says, how, to, the, to the phrase, how long, ad matai, says the verse refers to two groups. The spies, that is this evil assembly, and the rest of the nation. Regarding the spies, God simply said, how long? Implying that they had reached the limits of his patience and there would be no divine forbearance towards them. God made clear why the spies' sin was so serious. What, so what was the reason? What was the purpose? Because God is a very uh, forgiving God. He is a God who is uh, long-suffering, patient, right? So what is it about the spies that he said enough is enough? Why did he punish them the way he, he did? Whereas the rest of the people he punished, but it wasn't so drastic and it wasn't in one fell swoop. In other words, they were punished, but they still had 40 more years of life left. So it says, um, the reason is they were malinim. Malinim is the Hebrew word used here, meaning that they were not content to lack faith themselves, but they provoked others to lose faith and sin. This is what I was talking about earlier uh, in an aliyah, where we were talking about the propensity of the human condition to want to pull people down. And as I said yesterday, I believe it was, where I was telling the story of the uh, inmate who had the kosher meal, and he's just talking to a, a, a curious um, person about it. And the table next to him that has people allegedly of a Christian belief, and they're eating a regular tray, and now they're up in arms. And so I, I mentioned that yesterday, and I was thinking, I'm like, the, the question that he was asking me is, why should they care? I mean, if they... If they feel comfortable in the theology, why, why do they a feel agitated and b want to make me stop eating kosher? And so the answer is, is because we're never comfortable in our sin. We always want people to sin with us, and that's the, the was the sin of the spies. The sin of the spies were not content with the fact that they didn't believe; they wanted to make sure that no one else believed either. That was 
that was their issue. And you'll notice this when people start speaking Lashon Hara or many people that have issues within the congregation, whether it's with the leadership or with, or, or with another person. And again, this applies to all congregations. They will always, always, always go around seeking to get people that will join their cause. And it doesn't make, it's not rational, it doesn't make any logical sense, but it just, the issue is we want people to join us in our sin. Another comment from the Art Scroll, it says, a chastised nation realizes too late. So this is talking about the fact that once the nation had had been, once the, the judgment had been issued, right, suddenly they're ready to make tshuva. You know, we're going to read uh, tomorrow about the story of the man who was gathering uh, sticks on Shabbat. And this is also can be applied to the story of Achan uh, in the book of Joshua, who was found to have stolen some of the precious things from uh, Jericho. Uh, both both, both uh, stories relate to what I'm about to say. But I recently was looking at a conversation. I wasn't engaged in the conversation, but I was just reading through some notes on a Facebook congregation uh, conversation this week, and somebody um, somebody mentioned this incident, and they were a uh, I think they were more of a messianic kind of person. Uh, so basically, they're Christians, and so they were struggling with the concept of of God killing somebody. Uh, for breaking um, the Shabbat. And, you know, as a result, uh, they're naturally going more towards the grace concept because it just seems so mean that God would do that. And so uh, basically that's an indictment on God if you feel that way because you now you're suggesting that God's judgment is somehow unfair or unjust, which is, uh, well, it's actually heretical, but, but at, at the very least it's just short-sighted. But... Um, I wanted to just bring out an important point, which I don't, I've never really heard anybody mention before. Maybe they have, but I, I personally have never heard anybody say this. And that is, how come the guy didn't make tshuva? So, when it comes to, um, first of all, if you, if you study the book, of, excuse me, the Tractate of Sanhedrin in the Talmud, you find that in order for somebody to receive the death penalty, First and foremost, they had to be made aware prior to their violation. They had to have been made aware by at least two witnesses that what they were about to do or what they were potentially going to do could, in fact, incur the death penalty. That's number one. And if no one had told them, hey, Bill, if you pick up sticks on Shabbat, you could be receiving the death penalty. If nobody told Bill that, then Bill's off the hook immediately. Okay, so that what does that tell us? It tells us that this guy, Bill, I'm going to say his name is Bill, I have no idea. <laughs> he was already, he was aware. But think about this whole process. He gets caught, um, he gets brought up through the chain of command all the way to Moses. Moses and Aaron are not exactly sure what to do, so what do they do? They take the guy to the tent of meeting, that is the Mishkan, and they ask Hashem, and never one time during this entire episode do we hear this guy say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Um, 
I didn't know, I didn't realize. No. So what does it tell us? It tells us, it implies that there is a level of defiance within this person because he has made it all the way up from, from the municipal court all the way up to the supreme, supreme court, the court of the king who reigns over kings, and he's not yet one time showed any contrition. Same thing with Achan. Achan stole the things. He, he knew that the nation was, had been defeated in battle. He knew that Joshua was perplexed, didn't know what was going on. He knew the whole time he knew that he had stolen stuff in his tent, and they brought the entire nation before Joshua, and they picked out the, the, his tribe, and then they picked out his clan, and then they picked out his his uh, family, and, and then uh, they, they picked out him. And only then, after the judgment was, was issued, did he, re- did he confess. But, but this could have been, this potentially could have been all avoided if Achan had just confessed prior to that whole circus. So the point here is the nation... After the judgment comes down, then they confess. Which brings us to our, going back to our comment, it says, Moses' words hit the people very hard and brought them to their senses, to a degree. Because confession in the face of judgment, my friends, is not true confession. Because very often the human condition is we're more upset about the fact that we've, got, we've gotten caught and that we're facing judgment rather than true teshuva. This is why it's important to do teshuva every day. Make teshuva before the court case comes up. So it says, Moses' words hit the people very hard and they brought them to their senses. Too late, they decided that the land was indeed theirs and now they wanted it. But God no longer wished to give it to that generation. They had rebelled too many times and now their fate was sealed. This brings us to another important point that people don't realize or whatever, probably because, as I've said many times, the grace message has been extremely detrimental. What do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. There comes a point, and, and, and the Bible makes this clear, and Jewish um, literature makes this abundantly clear. Hashem is patient. He is loving. He is forgiving. But he is, it's, it's not for all eternity, meaning... That if we continue to rebel against him, we continue to deny him, we continue to say no, 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 no. Eventually, he will let us go in the path. Well, he always lets us go in the path we choose. But what I mean is, he will let us go, let us go. Meaning that he will no longer attempt to steer us right. And that is where it becomes exceedingly dangerous because now... We find ourselves walking in complete darkness, but we think it's light. It's terrible. Which, which just brings me to my next point. As it says here, Nevertheless, they insisted on advancing to the land despite Moses' warning that they would fail without God's help. In a sense, the spies were right. The people of Canaan were too strong for the Jews. But as Caleb had said, God could vanquish them if he wished to do so. The tragedy was that the people awakened too late from their spiritual stupor, as is all too common. People refuse to move when they can, but are ready when it's too late. Let me read that again. As is all, as is all too common, people refuse to move when they can, but are ready when it's too late. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. 
So the life lesson for us in that particular comment is that make teshuva today. Many of us delay our teshuva. Some people are still delaying the full embrace of Lapid Judaism because of various and sundry things. They're dragging their feet for a whole host of reasons. Maybe it's relationship issues. Maybe it's they have questions. And they, they've, you know, and again, this is a part of human nature. We have, we have 100 questions. 98 of them have been answered appropriately. And we still have those two questions. We just can't get a question, an answer about, even though the 99 or 98 questions have been answered properly, those one or two that's left, oh, well, you know, until I get all those answers, I'm, I'm still going to delay. And the danger with that, ladies and gentlemen, is that God doesn't always, the train doesn't always just stay at the station for us. Because, are you ready for this? It's going to hurt. It's not all about us. That's the other detrimental aspect of the grace message, is that we are taught that everything is about us, so God is just going to wait on us for all eternity, because after all, it's all about us. And that is not true. And so this is why God is saying, look, I love you. I want you. I, I'm, 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 pulling all, I'm pulling out all the stops to get you on the train, but eventually this train's going to leave. It's not going to stay around forever, which just means what? What does it mean to us? It means that every day we've got to do teshuva. Every single day we've got to do teshuva at least on some level. And even if you've done teshuva, do teshuva on your teshuva. Even if you think, well, I did Teshuvah uh, uh, 20 years ago. I accepted Yeshua. Okay, do it again tomorrow. Do it again now. Because, as I learned in the Marine Corps, the, uh, the brass is never shiny enough. All right? Those of you who have been in the military know what I mean. So, um, we have the wine, wine libations. We have a Torah of uh, consolation as a result. God um, uh, gives us this Torah in order to teach us that uh, he's for us. By the way, I love this insight from the Kehotu Mosh. I apologize. I'm going to go back here and read this because I just saw my note I wanted to mention. So uh, God is referring to... Um, this statement here, these 10 times this, the spies have tested me. And uh, Shoshana Brenner left me a voicemail the other day and mentioned this, and I had thought about it as well, but I didn't mention it. But she, she mentioned it to me, and I was, it was, I'm glad she did. That there is an interesting correlation here between the 10 tests of Abraham and, and then we testing God. Just an interesting correlation. But the spies tested, or not just the spies, actually, but the whole nation tested God these ten times. And it says, despite their exalted spiritual level, the generation of the Exodus did not work hard enough to learn from the divine miracles they witnessed. They therefore remained sub subject to their, quote, slave mentality, end quote. The assumption that reality is enslaved to the laws of nature, and that God is unwilling or incapable of overriding them whenever he chooses. The spies and their fo followers therefore forfeited the privilege of entering the promised land 
For in order to remain true to, um, to our divine mission while leading material lives, we need to believe that this is indeed possible. What's, impo what's possible? That God can override nature. And the idea that everything uh, is just, uh, it, it's just, it's just going to happen, we don't have any control over it, that is a slave mentality. Now, the lesson they were supposed to learn from the miracles in this context was that God commands nature, not the other way around. Um, and I would suggest that there's another type of slave mentality that has to do with the, the, uh, the miracles that Messiah did for us. We, many people misinterpret that. They misinterpret the miracles of Messiah to, to suggest that we don't have to follow the Torah because the Messiah did all these miracles and followed the Torah for us. That is another form of slave mentality. Why? Because it keeps us bound to the slavery of sin. What do I mean by that? Because, my friends, the definition of sin, this is so important. All of you probably know this already. There may be somebody who's watching right now or listening right now who's never heard this before. But the definition of sin, biblically speaking, and that's where we want to go, right? We want to go with what the Bible teaches. Isn't that true? I would think so. But biblically speaking, the definition of sin is the violation of God's holy Torah, a.k.a. his law, the law of Moses, the law, the whatever, the, the word of God. Therefore, if our mentality keeps us in a theological habit, in which we continue to break the law of God, that keeps us in a slave mentality, meaning that we are continuing to live in a life of sin. And we like to think about, well, my sin, I'm, like, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a uh, bank robber, therefore I'm not living a life of sin. But my friends, if you're not living a life of Torah, you're living a life of sin. And that's not my opinion. I do have opinions, but this is not one of them. This is the Word of God. We may not like it, but it is the fact. And the idea that, um, you know, we can just ignore that is a, is a type of slave mentality. Now, um, there's more I want to share, but we don't have a whole lot of time left. I want to get uh, some of this I'll, I'll come back to later, but... Let me get to, um, I want to, uh, probably tomorrow I'll share how it all played out in the wilderness uh, with respect to how the people died, what that looked like. Um, but I want to share now, uh, about conversion. So let me go over here and look at our aliyah that we had today. In verse 15, actually beginning of verse 14, it starts to talk about the proselyte who sojourns with you. So Rabbi Monk has a comment, comment here. And actually there's another comment in the Gutenberg, so I want to get to this um, to share these. Because I obviously, as many of you know, conversion is a uh, my favorite topic. So in verse 13, it says, Every citizen shall do so with them. Now, it's talking about the libation offerings. And it says, Every citizen shall, um, shall do this, right? So it says, There was originally some confusion as to whether converts were included in the term citizen. Ordinary Israelites wanted to exclude converts, whereas the converts themselves argued that citizen 
excludes only pagans. And by the way, the word Gentile means pagan. It does not mean nation. Nope, it does not. That is actually a modern theological definition that has no basis in historical realities of the word. Please don't doubt me, but I digress. Moses supported the converts, that is the proselytes, pointing to the text of verse 15, the same teaching and the same judgment shall be for you and for the proselyte. The Israelites finally became convinced when they became aware that there were actually three classes of converts and that these are symbolized by the use of the word ger, which is proselyte, three times in the next three verses. The Torah repeats the word three times to show that the law applied to all three classes. So, we're about to read the classes here in about two seconds, but let me just say this. There's lots of discussion in Judaism about true converts and fake converts or sincere converts and less sincere converts. And uh, the Ger the, Zadik, the, the, the true convert, is exalted and considered to be the one who is really in covenant and all the other converts that are less sincere are considered to not really be in the covenant. But I want to emphasize, based on what we're about to read, that is not true halakhically. We read in the Torah that there were converts who, um, who came and, 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 and actually deceived Joshua. And as a result, they were converted. And they were, um, they were not exalted as the best converts in the world, but they were all considered to be in the covenant. So therefore, if someone has gone through conversion... And, and they haven't, maybe, maybe their initial motive for conversion was not the best. Because conversion should be for the sake of heaven. This is the point I'm trying to make for our Jewish friends out there. It should be for the sake of heaven. But suppose that somebody converted because they wanted to marry somebody. Even though that is not the best situation, if, in fact, they converted according to the proper halakha, which we're about to explain, it's still a valid conversion. To that, it says here, the noblest class of proselyte consisted of those who converted in total honesty and sincerity. Obviously, that's the ideal. We want people to convert because they love God and they want what he wants. The second class consists of those who converted because they wanted to marry Jewish women. Notice it says Jewish women. I think that's interesting. Why didn't it say just a Jewish person? But the person converted because they wanted to marry a Jewish woman. Well, it's just because this is human nature. Gentlemen are often attracted to the ladies. It's not necessarily very common the other way around. Not to say that women are attracted to men, but I'm just saying that normally it's the man who says, hey, I'm not really much interested in uh, Judaism necessarily, but she sure is pretty. And I'm willing to come to uh, a synagogue uh, because she's there. And, um, uh, you know, he looks around and says, I don't know about all this tefillin and davening and uh, all this other kind of stuff, but I know that if she likes it, I like it. And that's not the best motivation but it's still valid, and besides, maybe he marries her, and he, he goes through conversion, and he makes friends at the shul, and next thing you know, he is 
Now he's doing it for the right reasons. We don't know. We have to leave that up to God. But the point being is it's a second class, but it's still valid. The third class was performed by people who had renounced idolatry but, still not being fully convinced, allowed themselves to eat food that was not kosher. That is obviously bad, but again, the point being, halakhically, they're still accepted in the covenant. Our goal then would be to help those people achieve a level of amuna where they stop sinning and actually embrace the totality of uh, God's Torah. So it says in verse 15, Hakahal for the congregation, the same decree. It says a doctor can adapt a treatment to different circumstances and individual patients with particular temperaments. It is not so with our laws. This right now just destroyed again for like the 50th time uh, the Messianic Gentile theology that is false and the Noahide theology which is false. It's saying right here that the Torah can be applied only in one way. A doctor can pr- adapt m- treatment to different circumstances and div- individual patients with particular temperaments, but this is not so with our laws. They are absolute and are incumbent on everyone, even if it happens that they fit some more than others. They are not relative, favoring the individual over the collectivity. That is why the essential finality of the law is independent of the circumstances and of time and of place. This is Rambam's guide for the complex to the uh, for the perplexed. So, so much for this law applies to this group and this law applies to that group. Um, the reality is is that the law is a package deal. You either obey it or you don't. And there's no such thing as, well, I accept these laws. These, I, I accept the moral laws, but not the civil laws. I accept the moral laws, but not the ceremonial laws. There's no such thing. Those are all divisions by man. But they're not divisions by God. And one final thing, just some, some halakha about conversion. The Jewish people entered the covenant with God through three things. This is really the only three things, my friends, that are required for a valid conversion. The only, I want you to hear what I just said. The only three things that are required for a valid conversion. Some people have erroneously and ignorantly said that Lapid um, conversions are not valid. These are coming from people who don't know anything about conversion whatsoever. Because you ask them, why aren't, they conv- why, aren't they, why aren't they valid? Well, they're not recognized by this group or by that group. They're not recognized by this administration or whatever. Well, welcome to Judaism, my friends. That's just called politics, and that happens amongst all branches of Judaism. Orthodox don't accept reform. They don't accept con- uh, uh, conservative. Uh, the ministry in Israel accepts some Orthodox conversions, but not all. Some rabbis are on the we approve you list, some are not. Welcome to Judaism. Okay? Um, So, there's no such thing as some overarching body of Jews anywhere that approves, quote-unquote, conversions and make them therefore valid. What makes a conversion valid is... Halacha, that is Jewish law. And there are only three things required of someone to have a valid conversion. Period, end of story, no argument, and here they are. Circumcision, 
ritual immersion in a kosher mikveh, and the offering of a sacrifice. That's it. That's what the law requires. If someone has gone through those three things, they are a valid convert. And again, to emphasize, so important to equip you so you can talk to your friends, what makes a Jewish conversion valid is the halakha period. There is no magic Merlin wizard somewhere that stamps an approval on your certificate and mails it to you from some magical Jewish North Pole that doesn't exist. Okay? And by the way, I should also emphasize that what matters about conversion is God's approval, not man's. Can I get an amen out there? I mean, really, you know, do you care if the ministry in Israel, which is a secular ministry, approves your conversion? Or do you care if Hashem does? I'm just asking. Because you're going to spend the Olam Haba with Hashem, not with the government of Israel. And I love Israel. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But i am they're not my judge. When I pass away, I'm not going to stand before them. Okay? So just know that, believe that, and trust that. So anyway, it says, uh, so too later. So, so this is how all Jews enter the covenant. This is the point. What Rambam is saying is that all Jews enter the covenant through circumcision, ritual immersion, and offering a sacrifice. That's how it says here, the Jewish people enter the covenant with God at Sinai through these three things. And therefore, converts for all time will enter the covenant through these three things. And as a result, it's saying here, they will be valid converts. So the question becomes, what about the sacrifice? Well, you could say spiritually the, the Lapid sacrifice is Yeshua, but to be exact, no convert since the destruction of the temple has been allowed to offer a sacrifice because there isn't a temple. So therefore, Jewish halakha states that all converts are valid and they will offer a sacrifice retroactively when Mashiach comes and builds the third temple maybe soon in our time. And until then, the art scroll Humash brings down that converts are valid for all time, as it says in our verse, for all generations, interpreted to mean that conversion is possible for all time and in all circumstances. So, for those who say, well, there's no longer any conversion today, um, that is absolutely not true according to Jewish law. End of our Aliyah today. Uh, tomorrow we will continue with the final Aliyot of uh, 6 and 7. Until then, may your day be like heaven. How about that? All right, shalom and blessings. We'll see everybody tomorrow. Have a great, fantastic day.